Good morning, my name is Pastor Matt. I serve as one of the elders here and the privilege of bringing you the word this morning. If you have little kids, four years old through kindergarten, that you would like to be in a children's church service, they meet in the room just adjacent to us for the rest of the service. So if the kids would like to go that way, that'd be great. If you're with us this morning, I encourage you to open your own Bible, or if you need a Bible, there should be Bibles in a seat rack in front of you, and open up to the center of the Bible, uh, the book of Proverbs, verse 16, chapter 16, excuse me, verses 1 through 4. We've been looking in the book of Proverbs for the last uh, several weeks this summer, trying to seek the wisdom of God and to hear from Him on how to live our days. Uh, we will finish that series today, and then next week we are going to begin a, a sermon series this fall called The Marks of the Church. What does it mean to be the church? What is the church? Um, there's lots of books about that will tell you what you can do to make your church grow bigger. I don't read those books. Um, I read the books of what does God want the church to be? God will grow his church. And so we'll spend a number of weeks looking at what is the church, what are the marks of the church. Let me pray, and then we'll dig in. Father in heaven, I would just ask by your grace and your mercy that you would help us to understand the words that have been uh, preserved for us in your word. We believe that by your Holy Spirit, men and women were moved by the Spirit to write the very words of God in the scriptures. And so we want to hear what your word has to say so that we would know who you are and we know who we are, and then we would live rightly. I pray for your mercies on us. Um, each of us come in here with different anxieties, fears, hurts, and sorrows. I pray, Lord, that each of us would be able to cast our cares upon the Lord now. Lord, clear our mind from the many distractions. Uh, I believe that Satan does everything he can to keep people from church, and then once he gets us here, he tries to make us think about nothing uh, everything but church. And so, Lord, would you help us to think about your word and who you are and mercifully minister among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you saw the movie many years ago about a man named uh, Rudy Rudiger, Dan Rudiger, also known as Rudy, who wanted to play football for Notre Dame Irish. And there's this, you know, humorous scene where he's in a conversation with the Catholic priest and the Catholic priest says, you know, after all of my years of ministry, I've come to believe two profound truths. One, there is a God, and two, I'm not him. In, in kind of the last three, four, or five days of just looking at this text, I've found that that little dictum is very true, and if I could almost retitle this sermon after I sent it in for the bulletin, I would just title it, God is big and we are small. And I feel like that is some of the most profound wisdom we can put our arms and lives around as we close this series on the book of Proverbs. God is big, and we are small. Let me begin by asking two questions, though, of you, and maybe think about how you would answer them. Who are you? And where are you? Who are you? And where are you? A common answer to that question today would go something like this. I am a free and independent person in a world of my own making. I am a free and independent person in a world of my own making. This is what we tell kids when they're growing up. 
You can do anything, you can be anything. But these answers do not help when you are sick. They don't happen, they don't really seem to be true when your relationships begin to fall apart. You don't feel so free and independent when death knocks on your door. When jobs are lost and cruelty strikes, you don't hear people saying, I'm a free and independent person in a world of my own making. So who are you and where are you? There's a Methodist pastor and professor by the name of James Bryan Smith, and he talks about these two questions in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life. And he writes, uh, he talks about that the answer to these questions will profoundly shape the way you live. You might live in constant fear or shame, or you might live with faith and hope and love. So here's the, here's the answer that he thinks will profoundly shape you if you answer it this way. You could say, I am a child of God. Who are you? I am a child of God, one in whom Christ dwells, and I am living in the unshakable kingdom of God. He says if we believe this, we would realize that a Christian is never in danger. I am a child of God, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. James Bryan Smith goes on in his book to say, no danger, big question mark. He says, you could get cancer, hit by a bus, lose your job, or lose a loved one in a heartbeat. Let me say clearly, none of these things can harm those who live in the kingdom of God. If we die, we step into glory. If we lose a job, we can learn how to trust God for something better. If we lose a loved one, we can be certain that we will soon enjoy their company for all eternity. As long as we live in fellowship with our good and beautiful God in his mighty kingdom, we have nothing to fear, not even fear itself. For nothing, life or in death, can separate us from the love of God. When we know this to be true, we can let go of worry and begin living with confidence and joy. Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's holy word. We read, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. So the, the text before us gives us a glimpse of the bigness of God and the smallness of mankind. We see a good God at work among his people, a good God who keeps evil on a leash and will one day bring it to final judgment. Four verses, four truths on God's bigness. We're going to look at God plans, God weighs, God establishes, and God completes. So let's look at an, the amazing truth found in verse 1. It says, we learn that God plans. Notice in verse 1, it starts by saying, to humans belong the plans of the heart. So yes, humans are making plans. We make plans all the time. Most high school kids plan to have a job and a family someday. We plan our vacations. We plan our schedules. We plan to go to the grocery store. We plan to visit friends. We plan to take in a movie. Humans make plans. In fact, it says here, we even make plans on what we intend to say. But 
from the Lord, it says, comes the proper answer of the tongue. If you jump down just to verse 9 in chapter 16, you hear this. In their hearts, humans plan their course. But it is the Lord who establishes their steps. So one of the overarching truths here in verse 1 is that uh, despite human planning, God's, our plans are subject to God's plans. Um, even to the fine details of what we had hoped or planned to say, all things are ultimately subject to God. One of the clearest examples of this, that I, I was thinking about this week, is there's this story recorded in the book of Numbers. So those of you familiar with kind of the biblical storyline, God brings his people out of the land of Egypt, and he's going to take them into the promised land. And it was supposed to be a direct course, but the people didn't believe God. They didn't trust God, and so God says, well, we'll take the long route then. Welcome to 40 years of wandering. And so in the midst of all of these wanderings, there's this uh, awareness of the foreign pagan nations that they're wandering in, that there is a very large people group, and they intend to take the land. And so a pagan king goes to a sorcerer named Balaam and says, I need you to curse Israel. Put a stop to these people who are coming into my land. In Numbers chapter 22, verses 4 through 6, it says this, so Balak, son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, he sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River, in his native land. And Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And so what does Balaam do? He gets his team of people, his donkeys, and he is going off because he intends to curse God's people. Balaam intended to do what Balak had requested, but God stopped Balaam from doing what Balaam had intended. In fact, rather than curse Israel, on seven different occasions, every time Balaam opens his mouth, he speaks a blessing on the people of Israel. Couldn't curse them once. Couldn't curse him twice. Blessing, 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 blessing. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. Here's this, though. But don't think for a second that Balaam was rewarded for blessing Israel. He is ultimately held account for his evil intentions, and he is put to the death. Humans plan, but God's plans prevail. In the case of Balaam, God now think about this, though. We've got to realize this is, we live in real life. So in this particular case, God completely thwarts the work of a wicked man. But in other cases, it's not a complete thwarting. It's a using of wicked plans for greater purposes. We see this in the murder of the innocent person, Jesus Christ. There's a scene in Acts chapter 4 when the early church is praying because they are suffering, they are being persecuted, and they cry out to God, well, how are we going to face this? What are we going to do? And then they recall the God who works things out. They pray in Acts 4, 27 to 28 to God. They say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, wicked men, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire 
against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. We need to get our minds around this. This is the most horrific event in human history. This is worse than Auschwitz. The innocent Son of God with infinite dignity and infinite worth and infinite glory is conspired against and killed by wicked men. There is nothing more heinous that has ever happened in the history of the world Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided before should happen. So sometimes God plans, he plans and he just thwarts evil entirely in the case of Balaam. In this case, God, in his plans, he can use evil for the greatest good. The most horrific event in human history it turns out being the most glorious and good event in the history of the world. And here's the thing, it's not just in these big issues. God's, I believe God's in the little stuff, stuff too. He cares about the little stuff of our lives. I appreciated a, a paragraph in Jared Wilson's very recent book called The Imperfect Disciple. They could have taken my picture and put it on the cover. The imperfect, but listen to what he writes. This is so helpful for me. He says, if the God of our salvation is sovereign, we can relax. Remember, you are a child of God in the unshakable kingdom of God. We can relax. It doesn't depend on us. The world is not what we make of it. I can stop fuming about the lady in front of me in the grocery store express line with 46 more items than the allotted 10. I might have freely chosen this line, but God saw this moment coming. He predestined this very circumstance, and if I believe that, I can be patient. Whatever you're facing, whether it's the grocery line or a relationship struggle that you're in now or something that's going on in your work, God can join you. God has a plan in that. You can be patient. One other aspect of God's plans is he promises, this is for you, child of God, he plans to help you speak. Remember, the man plans what he's going to say, but the Lord brings about his plans. Here's a good news for you. God can help you speak. When Jesus gives instructions to his disciples for being engaged as witnesses, he gives them this promise, Matthew 10, verse 17 and following. He says, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils. You will be flogged in synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. God knows this. His people will suffer. It's in the plan. Verse 19, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. He's with us. You are a child of God in the unshakable kingdom. No evil comes to you outside God's plan. He will give you the words to say and strength to endure. And here's the thing. When you suffer and when you die, Jesus is with you. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to die. 
And he has swallowed both suffering and death for you. Know this also, though, if you are not a child of God, beware. God will be honored and his children vindicated and his children protected. Isaiah 54, 16 and 17 say, See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon formed you against, will, against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the Lord. He's going to vindicate his people. He's going to protect his people in the end. Friends, God is big and we are small. God plans. Verse 2 says God weighs. God weighs. It says all a person's ways seem pure to them. But motives are weighed by the Lord. Humans have this uncanny ability to feel good about what they are doing. Everything we do seems pure or justified. Sure, we know we shouldn't be sleeping around, but you don't understand my situation. I know I shouldn't have said those things, but you would too if you would have been provoked like me. I know this is wrong, but I can't make it through it without it. What we do seems so right, so pure, and so dead on. Now the other guy, though, He's a greedy jerk just looking out for number one. The 19th century's Charles Spurgeon remarks on this verse with these probing words. He says, There is a propensity in the human nature which leads men, even when, even when they are most wrong, to judge themselves most right. The text at the same time suggests the terrible conclusion to which all self-deception will certainly come. For the judgment of man concerning himself I'll say this again. For the judgment of man concerning himself is not final. And there comes a day when the Lord who weighs the spirits will reverse the verdict of a perjured conscience and make the man to stand no longer in the false light which his conceit has thrown around him, but in the true light in which all his fancied glory shall vanish as a dream. The motives are weighed by the Lord Spurgeon is saying, woe to us if we come to, the la to the, our last day with all of our self-deceits and falsehoods not yet exposed. Because they will be exposed then. It's a grace when they get exposed now. Woe to us if we end our days without the blood of Jesus and the mercy of God. Oh, that the Spirit of God would do what Jesus promised in John 16, 8. When he comes, the Spirit, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. I expect that you are scared to have your sins exposed, to have your past laid out, to admit what the things that you've thought and done. I know it's hard to confess what you've done and where you have gone. But we are in a very dangerous position if we get to the end of our days and meet God's perfect and exacting justice without forgiveness. Particularly to the Christians in the room, today we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take this meal. One of the admonitions for us is we're supposed to examine 
ourselves before we take this meal. Lord, to invite the Holy Spirit of God to probe our consciences, to reveal where we've gone astray, to expose where maybe on Tuesday we were in the right, but now by, by now we know, whoa, <laughs> I was way out of line. There's an invitation to examine yourselves. Yes, God will get the final say. He will weigh it perfectly. But all throughout Scripture, we need to be weighing ourselves according to his word. Have others who know you look at your hearts and speak the word to you. Friends, we, we must weigh ourselves before we take our last breath. We must weigh ourselves before we take our next breath. We must weigh ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper today. We should go with both fear and trembling as well as joy and gratitude to receive the meal for sinners. We dare not take this meal in vain. We dare not blow off our weekend sins and think they mean nothing to a holy and good God. God weighs us. He has pure eyes. His justice is sure, and it is coming. God plans. God weighs. The third truth found in verse 3 Tell us, you know, telling us about God's bigness is it says God establishes. Verse 3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. This word to commit is the idea of like rolling over all of your concerns, your hopes and ambitions to God. Here they are, God. These are yours. Take them. And it says those who do that, like with integrity and honesty, say, here, here are my works, here are my plans, God. God says, I'm going to come and establish you. I'm going to come and support you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to hold you steady. Years ago, there was a famous uh, man, who he became famous, but he wasn't famous, when he started selling shoes in the Chicago area, and he started ministering to children. In fact, he would take children into an, an abandoned freight car and read the Bible, and he had candles lit around. He'd have a kid on his knee, and he'd read in the Bible, and everybody in town called him Crazy Moody. In the early 1860s, he said, I, I want to start a church. So he and 11 other people started a church, 12 people started a new church. Crazy idea to start churches. Now, the t by the time D.L. Moody died, he'd traveled the globe uh, over, if they would have added up all his miles, he would have gone 10 times around the globe. That little church of 12 people eventually built a building that seated over 10,000 people. And many Sundays, they didn't have enough room for people, and people would sit outside and they'd put the windows down so they could listen to this man preach the Bible. What I love is something he said that gets at the heart of committing your ways to the Lord. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. If we're consecrated to him, if we commit our ways to him, God comes and he does amazing things. This should blow us away. God will commit to join you in your work. This is true for the stay-at-home mom. At two in the morning, commit this work to the Lord, he'll establish you. This is true for the stockbroker, the insurance broker. This is true of someone who's working with their hands to build things. If we truly believe this, we would get out of the bed morning get out of bed in the morning. We would pray. If we truly believe this, we would not fear sacrificial giving. If we believe this, we would love difficult people. 
If we truly believe this, we'd speak the name of Jesus at home and at work and among the neighbors. Some of you are uh, lovers of the Chronicles of Narnia, first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's this repeated line, because the true king is in town. His name is Aslan, and he is on the move. And all of the loyal beasts who love Aslan don't sit on their behind when Aslan is on the move. It's time to work. It's time to labor. The king is coming and victory is at hand. God establishes what we do. A person in church history who believed this truth was the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. In his lifetime, the Methodists grew from about four members to 132,000 members. Since the average man lived about, about 30 pounds a year, John Wesley refused to live on more than 30 pounds a year, even though some years he made 1,500 pounds. 15,000, he lived on 30. They estimate that he made well over 30,000 pounds in his lifetime, but when he died, they found a few leftover coins in his pocket and in his dresser. A famous dictum of John Wesley was this, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at the times that you can, to all the peoples you can, as long as you ever can. This man believes that, believe that God establishes the work of his people. And when God's on the move, his people get on the move. For we are God's handiwork, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those earlier verses are important. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. No one can boast. So God saves you, but God saves you for good works. He saves you to work. We work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. For God is working in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. The famous Baptist missionary who went to India was William Carey. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He, he understood that God establishes the work of his people. So God plans God weighs, God establishes, and finally, verse 4 tells us God completes. Verse 4 says, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. So everyone needs to know this. God has an end in mind, and he will have that end to come to be. The prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 46, verse 10, Speaking through the lips of God, he says, I have made known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So God has a final plan for his creation that he will complete. More intimately, God has a, God's going to complete the work that he does in an individual Christian's heart and soul. Philippians 1.6 says that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But so too here in Proverbs 16.4, God will complete his plan for the wicked. 
Revelation chapter 22, it says, when the new heaven and new earth are in place and every tear is wiped away and God's people are welcomed and rejoicing and working, it says some are set outside. They are not a part of this place. God places outside those who have loved their sin more than God. No person speaks more on the reality of a future and coming hell than Jesus. He speaks about it often. One example is recorded in Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43. Jesus says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. God is big and we are small. Woe to us if we forget that. Woe to us when we go about our lives thinking we're in control. How foolish it is to believe, to say, I am a free and independent person in a world of my own making. The letter of James in the New Testament, he warns against all such thinking with these famous lines. If you have a Bible, we can look at it together. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Just bringing home the same ideas we're seeing in Proverbs 16. He writes this in verse 13 of chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. That's someone who thinks they're free and independent in a world of their own making. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. God is big and we are a mist. God is Niagara Falls. We are a fog in the morning gone by lunchtime. So how should we respond? I want to give two kind of closing words of application. The first one shouldn't be surprising, uh, is, is repent. So let me talk to the Christians in the room first. Talking to myself first and you second, but... Let me to ask you to repent from living independently from the Lord. Repent from prayerless living. Repent, repent from not examining yourselves. Repent from ignoring sin. Repent from going about your days and weeks without a thought of God and his word. Repent from forgetting about the costly sacrifice of Jesus. Repent, repent from making God small. Repent from making yourself big. Repent from living in fear of little things when you have a great big daddy in heaven who loves you. Repent from doubting God's plans. Repent from not committing your works to the Lord who wants to establish you. Repent, brother and sister, repent. 
to the non-Christian, you might not like this talk about God's bigness. You might not like that he's planning and weighing and establishing and completing. You may be put off by a God who is so sovereign, a God who is so committed to justice, so committed to his people, and so committed to bringing history to its proper conclusion. But even if you're a non-Christian, I want you just to invite you for just a moment to imagine just how breathtaking it is or could be if a God like this really existed. A God so committed to his people and his world that Jesus has come to die for them, to save them from sin, and to save them from hell. Not only that, we have a God who will never waste a hurt, will not let a wicked person get away with anything that he does not intend to bring about good. A child of God is safe in the kingdom of God. So let me just ask you, non-Christian, are you safe? Do you feel safe? Do you feel protected? Do you feel like God is with you and supporting you and sustaining you? You who want to be free, you who want to be independent, you who want to have the world at your fingertips, are you safe? And my prayer is that you get to the place where you say, no, I'm not at safe. I'm in a world full of predators. I am a prey that will just get destroyed by the lies of the enemy. And I've succumbed to them. I've experienced the pain and the sorrow that this world gives to those who don't trust God and walk with him, that aren't safe. And my invitation to you comes, I can say this based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, come home. Come home to God. Jesus has prayed, paid the price on your head at the cross. His blood is sufficient. His sacrifice is complete. Repent and turn to God and you will find a Lord and Savior who does not cast away any who come to him. Come home. Come home. Repent. One last word of application. And it's repeated all throughout Scripture as we, as we evaluate the bigness and the goodness of God. And it's the expression, redeem the time. That is, there is time left, no matter how you've wasted your last week or your last decade or last decade, it's what we've been given now, what is left, give this time to God. Use it for his good. The big God is for his people. He's for you, not against you. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. As we close the series on Proverbs, we want to be wise. We want to know what God's word says, what his will is, what his heart is, and then we want to get to it. He will establish you. Mike Allen is the chief political reporter for the magazine Politico. It's the most read news organization in Washington, D.C., and Mike happens to be a Christian. He was once asked this question. For Christians who want to be productive and make the most of their time, what is the most important piece of advice you would give? This is how Allen responded. To every day, think about what is the single thing you could do today that would serve God and your employer, or your audience, or your family. And if you think about one thing that you can do, you'll increase the odds that you'll do it. Just do it, he says. Instead of putting it on a list, pick 
one thing and do it. I think that's gold. I want to put this into practice. In light of a God who plans, a God who weighs, a God who establishes, a God who completes, what is the one thing God's calling me today in line with his will that would be a good work to the glory of God? What's the one thing? And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up. What's the thing? My guess is if we learn to listen to God in light of his word and do the one thing, he'll probably give you a second thing. But let's start with one thing. I've gone to bed at night, and you probably have two going, did I do anything good today? So let's flip it. Let's ask the question in the morning, what's the one thing that I can do? Now, as I do this, I want to remember that it is God who plans and God who weighs. Therefore, I want to hold my plans lightly and examine my motives carefully. But in light of the God who establishes and completes, when I'm fairly confident that this would honor him and do good to others, I want to act on it in the sure confidence that I am a child of God and I live in his unshakable kingdom. Amen? Amen. I want to, I want to go to the Lord's table. Hopefully you've been weighing yourself and examining yourself. Uh, one other passage that is ministered to me this week, thinking about that I'm a child of God and the unshakable kingdom of God, comes from Matthew 10, where Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus wants us to know that the Father in heaven cares for us. And when you forget this, and we do, we have things like the Lord's Supper to remind us. This is what the Lord's Supper is doing. We are remembering that when we were at our worst, God loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God expressed infinite care by giving his infinite son to pay for the infinite penalty of the sin of our lives so that we might know him and have him as father. He cares for us. And then Jesus says, he cares about sparrows falling to the ground. Certainly he cares about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your days. He knows your heart. He cares for you. So my invitation for you is how we do this in this church is we'll, we go through these, um, down these center aisles and out the side to, to, to pick up the bread and pick up the cup. And, and what I want you to do is you, is you take these and come back to your seat, hold them, meditate. Meditate on God's care for you. Jesus gave us his body. Jesus gave us his blood. And the one who has given us so much, who did not spare his only son, will he not graciously give you all other things? Will he not take care of you and bring you home? Yes. Yes, he will. So if you know Jesus Christ and you're walking with him and you love him and you just want to be reminded today of the bigness of God and his goodness towards you, I just invite you to come and receive these. If, you ha if you're not a Christian yet, you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, I just encourage you not to take the elements today. Take the, the next few weeks just to pray, do I know this God? Am I a child of God? Have I entered his unshakable kingdom? And maybe next time when we take the Lord's Supper, you will join us in this meal about God's goodness toward his people. 
Let me pray, and as soon as I'm done praying, if the front rows would begin to pick up the bread and the cup, that'd be great. Father in heaven, I'm thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, you completed your perfect plan in Jesus Christ. You, you weighed us and found us wanting, and yet you sent your son to die in our place. And now, Lord, you establish our work, and you will complete your work. And so we just worship a God who is that big and that good. Thank you that you make enemies children. Thank you that you bring children into a kingdom that's unshakable, unconquerable. We just praise you that we can know you. Pray that you'd take even this meal now and just nourish our spirits and our souls with the truth that's meant to convey that God is for us. In Christ's name, amen.